Hey y'all, welcome to Footnotes and Witness. My name is Deborah J. McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find him in our own story. Let us be faithful witnesses to his character and glory. All right, y'all, it's a new season, and we're going to be doing something new, walking through a book of the Bible together. So I chose the book of John because it's a great place to start reading the Bible. If you get really excited and you're like, okay, I'm going to do this and I, and I want to jump right in and you go straight to Genesis, <laughs> sometimes it can be a bit daunting. That doesn't mean that it's the wrong place to start. Everybody needs to start where they're comfortable. But when people ask me lately, I've been recommending like, start with the book of John and get your feet wet. Learn how study methods are helpful to you. Learn which ones are useful and which ones aren't. And John is a great place to jump in. It's unique among the Gospels. John leaves out some of the most significant events in Jesus's life and ministry. And we see it's because he's trying to do something in particular. In the first opening verses, we see why he leaves Jesus's birth out and things like that. It's because John is trying to make the case of Jesus's divinity, meaning that Jesus is the Son of God and divine. He is from heaven. So before we jump right in, I just wanted to remind you that this is kind of a new format and our study conversations will be based on the understanding that you have already read the chapter. So each week we'll be doing kind of like a first look, an inductive study method look of one chapter at a time. And if you haven't listened to or read that chapter, then you can either do that now by cracking your Bible or your Bible app. Or going back and I actually read the chapter for you in last episode. So I'll release the episodes every week, the chapter being read out loud, and then the study chapter. And I'm doing them separately so that way you can skip it if you don't need it read to you. Or it's just an easy reference to go back. So hopefully this works out. We'll see. Okay, so chapter one. Now as far as prologues go... (laughs) Uh, this one's hefty. (laughs) John makes a deep and complicated theological statement about Jesus. And it lasts kind of for the first 17 verses. So we're gonna make kind of a footnote here on just verses one through five, that Jesus is the word and the light. Verses one through five are a really profound summary statement about Jesus, and the wording can be a little clunky to read and comprehend. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So it can get a little clunky. (laughs) So my recommendation is to actually write out verses one through five, either on a post-it note, maybe a sheet of paper, but physically write it out and then put it somewhere where you will see it often. Back of your phone case, maybe by the mirror in your car, purse or wallet, wherever. This is where the study of the book of John starts, but it's also a really great place to revisit. So at the end of our study, we'll actually come back to verses one through five and see maybe if they have a deeper meaning or if we see them in a different way after studying the book. Now in the show notes, I'm going to make a list of different keywords that you can kind of be on the lookout for. 
All of the key words come from my ESV New Inductive Study Bible published by Harvest House, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Now, inductive study method has you highlight different keywords and different colors. You can also look for verbs and connecting words. They help you keep the story straight. I'll also link in the show notes to season two, episode 10. I kind of gave a quick intro on how inductive Bible study works. You can use these tools or not. Once again, I'm just trying to put all the tools on the table and you pick up what's helpful for you. But sometimes we don't know what's helpful until we try it out. So just remember, you can do as much as you want or as little as you want of the study methods as they help you. The goal is not to have every box checked. Like I I did all the verbs, I did all the colors, blah, blah, blah. The goal is to see Jesus rightly and to deepen your relationship with God through his word. And so that's what these tools are meant for. Another great study method is just summarizing. So verses one through five, that's a theological statement about the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Now, verse six, we move on and we get introduced to a man sent by God. Now, what can be confusing here is that it just says the man's called John. And we might think that that's John the author, but this is John the Baptist. So just keep that in mind because John the Baptizer, or I call him Johnny B, is talked about a lot in this chapter. So verses six through eight tell us that Johnny B came as a witness to the light that is the Christ. After that, we get a few more details about the light. Like in verse nine, the light was coming into the world. Verse 10, it tells us that the world was made through the light. And so Jesus made the world. He was there at creation. And yet we're told that the world didn't know him. Verse 11, it even says that Jesus's own people won't receive him. So what does that mean? His own people. I thought Jesus came for the whole world. So that's a great question. And if you see several footnotes in one place, you can be sure that the translation was scrutinized and well debated. (laughs) In my study Bible in just verse 11, I actually have two separate footnotes. So you have a couple of options. You can make the observation, maybe note the question, and then move on. Or you can dive a little deeper. If you want to dive a little deeper, the first step might be just looking at different Bible translations. For example, the NIV says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And the NLT, the New Living Translation, says, He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Next step might be you could read some commentaries from those that you know and trust. My question that I wrote down was, who is Jesus's people? Jesus was born a Jew to Mary and Joseph from the line of David. Now, I remember stories of Jesus being rejected in his hometown and, of course, ultimately by the Pharisees. And I might just make a note of that, that when I come across these stories, I might make a note for my own to cross-reference back here to John chapter 1, verse 11. Then in verse 14, we have several details about the word. So the word became flesh. The flesh dwelt among us as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ showed us the glory of the Son of God, and Jesus's glory is full of grace and truth. So starting again in verse 19, we have a lot more about the witness testimony of John the Baptist, our Mr. Johnny B. 
So people are questioning Johnny B, people sent by the Pharisees. Now, this is a good place to just pause and chat about a couple of things. Do you know what Pharisee means? (laughs) It's okay if you don't. I am never surprised how many people who are raised in the church and in Bible study will actually admit that they don't really know what that means. It's just one of those words that Christians get familiar with because it's in the Bible. Now, maybe someday, my dream, (laughs) I could find a Hebrew scholar, someone who has raised in the culture, and we can talk about these kind of things, like doing an interview and helping explain some of these cultural things. But it is a complicated social structure, this idea of the Pharisees. It's from an old culture that still exists today and has continued to evolve in that. So I was usually taught something like Pharisee equals priest like my pastor. And if that's been your understanding as well, then you probably don't really care about these verses either. Okay, the Pharisees are coming to ask John some questions. Sure, not a problem. Suffice it to say, a Pharisee was not a pastor. (laughs) This was someone who was most likely not in the elite Levitical priesthood. A Pharisee was not bound by those family lines of you needed to be in the Levite bloodline to be a priest. Priest in the Jewish tradition had to be from that certain bloodline. But after the destruction of Solomon's temple, the priest didn't have much importance or influence because their identity and their purpose had always been attached to the temple. Then they go into exile in Babylon. And during that time, we see this sect emerge, the Pharisees. The Jews didn't have their home or their temple to commune with God anymore through the sacrificial system, which required Levitical priests. The focus kind of moved to communing with God by following behavior laws, the one thing that they could do in exile in a strange land. And the Pharisees then took it as their charge to, quote, help, unquote, people maintain these moral behaviors. They became the morality police. (laughs) And then over time, as people tend to do, it kind of got out of control. For instance, take the Sabbath. God intended to give us time for rest and reflection, but it ended up becoming this competition, right? Like, I'm so holy, look at how much I'm resting on the Sabbath. I'm not even doing any work. And then there's a one-up, like, oh, I'm not even going to walk more than a certain yardage on the Sabbath. I'm even holier than you. And the Pharisees are the people who are in charge of setting these standards. So when the Pharisees send people to ask John questions, it isn't your neighborly pastor who wants to get to know you and maybe invite you over for a barbecue. This isn't generally a good thing to get the attention of a Pharisee. And to the original reader, this interaction might give feelings of anxiety or dread. And we miss out on that because we don't have that cultural understanding. So the other thing to chat about real quickly is (laughs) anti-Semitism, to just acknowledge that sometimes Christians in particular can actually give way to anti-Semitism or racial prejudices against the Jewish people. There's a blaming of the Jewish people as a whole because they quote unquote put Jesus to death. 
So we just want to acknowledge that and just say that that has happened and to keep ourselves from doing it. That's like blaming an entire people group for the actions of a few. So in our Christian world, that would be like saying everyone who's a Christian is part of the KKK (laughs) because the KKK members uh, align themselves with Christianity and use their scriptures to hurt people and to justify their racial beliefs. And so while none of this is something that I don't think most people do intentionally, it does happen. And so we just want to acknowledge that and say that while there were some things that weren't great about the Pharisees, and while there were a group of people who actively tried to put Jesus to death, we don't blame an entire people group for that, for their actions, or have feelings of hatred or animosity towards them. And also, it's a good thing. <laughs> like Jesus had, this had to happen. And he and he tells his disciples that like, the son of God must die. And that's how we all get saved. And so while these are not simple feelings, they are good to acknowledge, but also to give the appropriate weight in the appropriate places. So we tend to see Pharisees as like equal to the bad guy in our story, but we don't want to reduce an entire people group to some kind of villainous stereotype either. So let's acknowledge that there were some cultural things that came with the Pharisees coming and asking questions that that would have produced some anxiety and some dread, but let's not take it any further into the hatred of an entire people group because it has happened. And so it's just good to just acknowledge that. So then we move on to the to the narrative section of this. It gives the story of these people coming and asking Johnny Beef questions and then him we see responding honestly. He says, no, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. And he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So that's a key phrase that I always highlight and say, as the prophet Isaiah said. So I'm going to look in my cross-references anytime I see that, because it is probably quoted from somewhere. In fact, in my study Bible, there's actually quotes around that verse. And it says that it is cited from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. (laughs) I might actually want to go to Isaiah and read that and get the context of it. That's a good thing to do anytime there is a direct quote from another place of the Bible, because the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. So understanding the context behind quotes can really help you see why they're there and what kind of impact they have. But like I said, we're doing a first dive, a first look. So we're going to keep on moving. So he's going to continue to be asked questions and he's going to tell them that someone is coming, someone who is way more important than John the Baptist. In fact, he says, I'm even unworthy to untie his sandal. And then we have the narrative summary of Jesus coming and actually being baptized and the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And then we get the narrative that John the Baptist, Johnny B was actually told by God that when he saw this, that would be a confirmation that that was the Christ that that was the Messiah. 
And so if you remember, John the Baptist and Jesus were actually cousins. So they probably have had some interaction in their life. And I don't know how you feel about members of your own family. (laughs) But I bet the affirmation was really nice to just be like, okay, I'm not crazy. And neither is he. God really is doing this. This is great. So that's just a personal side note. But Then in verse 35, we have a change in the narrative where we're going to start focusing on the disciples. And it says that there were two disciples that were there the day that Jesus got baptized. And one of them is Andrew, and he's going to get his brother, who is Simon Peter. And then here's where Simon gets called Peter, which is Cephas. It's a whole like name change, Greek, Hebrew thing. Don't worry about it. This is where we get Peter. And then Jesus goes to Galilee in verse 43. And we get Philip and Nathaniel in the next verses. So we see Jesus putting together his crew. He's starting to put together his disciples. But even here, we see the difference of the intent in the authorship of John. So the disciples are not the focus of the narrative. John was probably written last of the Gospels out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this may have given John some freedom to exclude details if they didn't serve his purpose, his purpose of highlighting the deity of Jesus, that Jesus was divine of God. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, we get the account of Andrew and Peter following Jesus. But we get a lot more details. It says what they were doing, what Jesus said to them, what their profession was, and so on. John excludes those details here, but does include the details of Nathaniel being known and being seen by Jesus before they actually meet. And that's because it's a miracle. So I wouldn't say that John, as an author, just cares more about Nathaniel than Andrew or Peter. His choice for which details he includes or exclude must be for the purpose of his writing. This is why it's important to ask these questions, like who the author is and why they're writing and to whom are they writing. If for no other reason, then we can read chapter one and understand that John didn't have a personal preference for Nathaniel over Andrew, but a preference to Jesus and to Jesus's story. John also has wonderful links to OT, to the Old Testament, woven through his book. Really, Jesus gives all these wonderful links (laughs) through his actions and his words. Jesus constantly points back to scripture. So another reason why we see the details for Nathaniel's story is because of these wonderful OT links. For example, the Son of Man. Our chapter ends with this title. Jesus calls himself this title, the Son of Man, more than any other title. It's Johnny B. that actually calls Jesus the Son of God in verse 34. Jesus tells Nathanael that he will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. Now that's a link to Genesis 28 verses 10 through 19. It's the Jacob's ladder story. He has a vision where heaven opens up and he sees angels going up and down. See, the details that John includes in the story of Jesus calling Nathanael are included because they point to the divine nature of Jesus, where the details of Andrew and Peter's profession don't. So this is a great list to keep while you're going through the book of John. These divine details, the things that point to the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Now, if you're feeling discouraged at all, let me just address that real quick. (laughs) I saw the link to Genesis and Jacob's vision because I've read it a lot. So it's kind of like when you get into a show. (laughs) My kids recently got into The Office, which is a show back from the early 2000s. But they were most excited about getting in on the jokes, the quotes. Like my husband and I referenced the show a lot, and they didn't always know what we were talking about. It's like an inside joke. Now they get it. And if you feel like you don't get it when you're reading the Bible, like, I can't believe she saw that. How am I supposed to see it? Don't worry. (laughs) It comes in time. You will see it. You will get in on the joke. And that's the point of this kind of Bible study. But it takes time and it takes effort. That's all. So we have chapter one, some huge statements about the nature of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is starting to have students that follow him. And yet there were already some people who were witnessing to his divine nature even before that. So next week, chapter two. So here's what you need to keep doing. Look for keywords or repeated words and phrases. Double underline geographic locations, like where things happen. Make a list or mark the evidence of Jesus's divine nature. Now, the book of John takes about two hours to read. Now, that's a movie. It's not actually that long. So in between the times where you sit down and study, like the times when you have notes and highlighters and pens, read the entire book or have it read to you. You can have it read to you while you're in the car, going to get your kids, while you're getting ready for work, on your commute. And then next Friday, you'll be even more familiar with all of these scriptures and be ready to really dive in and study. That is really honestly the most helpful way to get into an inductive study method is just repetition. Because every time you read it or have it read to you, you're going to see something else. So when you sit down and you're intentionally looking for things, they're going to jump out on the page for you. So do these things or not, whatever helps you. And I will see you next Friday for chapter two, because he's worth it.